tonight, we're going to look at uh, Hebrews chapter uh, 1 here at this particular time. It's um, a great chapter. I was reading this the other day, in actual fact, and um, I read the first two chapters, and I thought, wow, this is um, something that I'd like to speak on. Not the whole of the two chapters, but uh, we'll try and cover uh, some bits of it, in actual fact. But there is so much uh, by way of content in here that you could uh, spend a lot of time uh, sitting down and uh, listening to sermons, preaching this. I know myself, I've preached several times on uh, various aspects of these first two chapters. And uh, the reason why I've preached on them is because they've excited me and I hope they've excited those that I preach to. But uh, it is something that is exhilarating when you read in these particular verses. And you can't explain sometimes, can you, um, the exhilaration and the, the joy that you feel when you read the scripture sometimes. And uh, the reason why you, you, you can't really explain it to people, what that has an impact upon you and what it is doing to you at the time when you're reading it. And all you can say is that, you know, when you're reading the scriptures, what happens is that we have the accompaniment of the Holy Spirit who comes to enlighten the eyes of our understanding and enables us when we when we look at these scriptures, you know, that they come home to us with force and with power. And it has a real effect upon our hearts and upon our minds. It's something that uh, stimulates and stirs us so much so that we, we want to praise God for what he has done for us. But there is so much that is said in these opening two chapters where the whole book deals with the Lord Jesus Christ, as we know. But these two opening chapters really reveal to us the very person of who Jesus is, both in his uh, divine nature and, of course, in his human nature. It's not that um, he's confining it, but what he wants to do is he wants to show the complexity of the situation and the union that exists within Jesus, the divine and the human combined together in the one person. And in many ways, these two chapters sort of highlight that for us, and it shows to us something of the greatness of who Jesus is. And in many ways, when you start to read this, you know, it's, it's almost like reading John's prologue, isn't it, to his gospel. You know, John starts off, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And, uh, you know, he wants to impress upon the minds of the people that he's writing to the reality of who Jesus is. He is none other than God. There is no way in which you can understand who Jesus is except understanding it through the light and interpretation of what the scriptures say about him, that he is God. No other can be like him in any ways. And in many ways, this is what you get here in these opening verses. You get this declaration made by the writer telling us quite clearly, quite specifically, that Jesus is God. I've um, had conversations with Jehovah's Witnesses, and I've come to this chapter, chapter 1, and I said, well, you know what I mean, when God says, you know, you're not to bow down and worship idols and things like this, isn't it? And, and yet, what, what, the strange thing is, it says in Hebrews chapter 1, you know, it tells, tells us, let all the angels of God worship him. And God is saying that, isn't he? So there's a bit of a conflict there, isn't there, you know? If on the one hand God is saying in the Ten Commandments, you are not about to own before idols and things like that, and yet on the other hand, God is saying, let all the angels of God worship him. And the uniqueness, isn't it, when it makes this clear declaration, isn't it, in verse 8, for example, but to the Son, he says, your throne, O God, 
is forever and ever. The scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. So what he is doing is he clearly describes the person to whom he is speaking as God. This is taken, of course, as a quotation from Psalm 45. And it is a clear declaration as to the very nature and essence of who Jesus is. Let me switch that off. And what you have here is that the writer is saying that we should come to realize and to understand who this person is, that he is God. And he starts off by saying that God's spoken in various ways and in various times down through the ages, isn't it? To the fathers by the prophets. But in these last days has spoken unto us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. Now, if you go back to John's Gospel, isn't it, in chapter 1, isn't it? All things were made by him, and was not anything made that was made. You know, all things were created by him. Here is the one who is the creator of all things. He is the one who made everything that we see around and about us. This is the wonder of who Jesus is. And then he goes on to say, doesn't he? And you can think of John 1 again, verse 1. Who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. You know, this is the revelation of who God is. You know, when Jesus was saying, he was seen me as seen the Father. He is saying, look, implicitly and explicitly, look, when you're looking at me, he says you were seeing all of what God is. You know, he is the express image of his person. This is who he is. He is the revelation of God made to you and to me. And not only that, he says, but he is at this moment of time upholding all things by the word of his power. In other words, the whole of creation itself, or the universe, is held together and sustained by him. Now, what a declaration made about who Jesus is. This is before he starts coming to the fact of what God has said to him. I mean, this whole first chapter, in actual fact, you know, is, a, is a whole picture here, isn't it, of quotation after quotation after quotation to prove the point. And he is extracting from the Old Testament and he is applying it to who Jesus is at this moment of time. And he wants these people to realize the wonder and the amazing fact of who Jesus is. And the comparison that he makes, he will make other comparisons throughout this whole letter, but the comparison that he's going to make here in his opening chapters is he's comparing him with angels. And he says there is no real comparison, but if we were to try to compare them, he says, what you can see is that here is this Jesus who is the express image of God, and then he says certain things to Jesus that he never says to the angels, and never even enters into the mind of God. He says about this one, isn't it? Here is the one, he says. He says that he has sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. The more excellent name than they is really him being called and described as being the Son. There is a, a comparison when you look at angels, and you think of angels for a minute, and if you 
look through both the Old Testament and the New Testament, angels are described to us in various ways, but they are always described to us as being stronger and superior to man. They are always that much above them. They know more, they've got more strength. All certain characteristics about them describe them as being better or superior to man. And here, when Jesus is being compared with these angelic beings, how is he described? You know, the comparison is this. To which of the angels did he say this, says the writer? Well, he never said this, did he? You know? But to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. You know? When did he ever say that to any angelic being? The difference is, a bit like what you see in chapter 3, isn't it? Where there's a comparison made between Jesus and Moses, isn't it? And it says that Moses was a servant in the house, but Jesus was the son. Now, there's no comparison between being a servant and being the heir-elect. You know, he is the son. He is the one who is far, far superior and again he says, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. This was a quotation in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7 when he was talking to David. The application is to Solomon in one sense, but the greater application was to David's greater son. But he was to be his son. Here was the heir. Here was the one who was appointed to inherit all things. You know, there is no comparison. The angels are considered to be merely servants in the household of God. They are ministers, they are servants who serve. And even, in fact, when you go into verse 14, isn't it, it says like this about angels, are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? In other words, they have become the servants of God's elect. Now that's an amazing thing to think about, isn't it? But when you think about Jesus, isn't it, in the incarnation of Jesus, when Jesus comes into the world and he takes upon himself this human form, in chapter 2, of course, it describes why he has done this, isn't it? Why has he taken this upon himself? For in that he put all in subjection unto him, he left nothing that is put unto him, but now we do not see yet all things put unto him. But we see Jesus, he says, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor. You see, for a little while, he was made a little lower than the angels. And the whole purpose and intention of that was for the suffering of death. In order for him to be able to die, says the writer, he had to become a man and live and dwell like you and I in a physical body in order that that physical body could be subjected to death. But that was only a temporary situation. That was not going to be his permanent situation because he was going to be exalted, wasn't he? You know? He was going to be lifted up and exalted. We read about him, isn't it? Where is he now at this moment of time? He has sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Here he is. And then in verse 8, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever, a scepter of righteousness and the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more 
than your companions. So here we have this picture of Jesus being exalted, a bit like in Philippians chapter 2, isn't it? You know, when it talks about Jesus, you know, how he humbled himself unto death and that of the cross. But what has happened now? He says, well, God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In other words, he became in that status, in that position, for a short period of time. A little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. And that's what he experienced, isn't it? And in one sense, we could say like this, that that was the intention of the incarnation, wasn't it? For Jesus to come into the world, to take upon himself a human body, to die and to experience death for you and I. And what the writer wants to show to these people at this time, he says, look, when you consider who Jesus is, compare, you know, what God was doing in the Old Testament. There's one thing that God has always sought to do, and that is he is a God who is the God of revelation. And he is the God of revelation in this way, that he wants to reveal himself. When man was first created in the Garden of Eden, you know, when he walked in the Garden of Eden, he tells us, you know, that he walked with God, didn't he? You know, enjoyed God's company. God came, and uh, he wasn't afraid of God, and he enjoyed God being there. And only after sin came in, that he fled from God. But initially, he had a true knowledge of God, and it was a delight to him. And this is how God had made him. He had made him in such a way that he could enjoy God. He could enjoy the presence of God. Why? Because there was an intimacy of relationship there where there was no barrier, no hindrance. But God was holy and man was holy. And so there was not a problem, a relational problem between God and man. But what has happened? Well, we know, don't we, that sin came into the world. And God judges that sin. And so what you find is that man's knowledge of God almost becomes a vacuum because all of a sudden he's fleeing away from God. He doesn't want to draw near to God to know more about God, but he is pulling himself back further and further away from God. You know, in, one, uh, in Romans chapter 1, isn't it, when... Paul is describing the state and the condition of the world, isn't it? That he tells us like this, that men did not want to retain the knowledge of God. Didn't want to keep the knowledge of God there. He didn't really want to know about God. You know, he wanted to withdraw from God time and time again. But the sad thing about that is that it tells us there, and he goes on to say, doesn't it, that because of that attitude, because of that situation, that God gave them up. Gave them up to What? degradation, depravity, gave them up to allow them the freedom to commit as much sin as they wanted to sin. And that's the situation. Man's ignorance of God causes him to withdraw further and further away from God. And the further and further away he goes from God, the worse becomes his spiritual condition and his state in sin. And therefore God hands him over to give himself purely to the sin that inhabits his soul. But God has always wanted man to know him. 
Man was created for God. Man was created to know God. And so what you find is that God, by His grace, isn't it? You can only say by His grace, can't you? Intervenes in the affairs of men in that He works through a tribe and then through a nation to keep light in the world. And the way in which He keeps light in the world is that he raises a people, a people for himself, and he gives to them the word of God. And this is the wonderful thing here, isn't it? That God is not dead, isn't it? But God is alive and God is speaking. And it says, God at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets. You see, God down through the ages has constantly been speaking. He has constantly been revealing himself. And what the prophets were doing, of course, was they were communicating the mind and the will and the purpose of God. But in communicating that, of course, they were communicating the very nature and character of God. But this was the wonderful thing that here is an act of grace on the part of God that he actually chose a people. He chose Abraham. And he chose the tribes. And he made up those tribes into a nation. And through that nation, he created and gave to them the Ten Commandments. And he said to them, this is what I want you to do. This is how I want you to live. They were definitely going to fail, mind, but it was a bit of a test case, wasn't it, in one sense, you know, that God had given them these things, but he shows to us through this test case that it was impossible for man to maintain and to keep the law of God perfectly. But the wonderful thing is this, that God did not want to be the unknown God. And since Jesus has come, isn't it? What Jesus has done now is that this is an extension now, isn't it? Of revealing God to mankind, no longer concealed and confined within one nation and one people, but salvation was going to extend to all the world. And this is what we see here. He spoke in time past, what? Through the prophets, but in these last days he's spoken unto us by his Son. You see, Revelation, what is Revelation? I mean, you know, if you read commentaries on this and theologians, progressive revelation, and they always take these verses, they say, this is progressive revelation, of course, you know, because God was speaking through the prophets and revealing various things to himself, and there was a progression and a growth of knowledge and understanding of who God is. And so it's progressive revelation. God was constantly revealing himself, ultimately, until he comes to Christ, who is the final, perfect, revelation of who God is. He express image of who God is. But the thing is this, isn't it? That God is not silent, but God is speaking, and God has spoken down through the ages. And what the writer is about to say to these people is that the way in which God has revealed himself is in these various roles that are mentioned here, and they'll come out um, throughout the throughout the book of Hebrews, really, prophet, priest, and king, which are mentioned here, you know. I suppose you could look at it and say, you know, what was the prophet's role in the Old Testament? Well, in Moses' Moses' day, of course, uh, if you read in Deuteronomy chapter 18, it tells us about there was a prophet who was going to arise like unto me, he says, you know, and when Jesus comes, isn't it, people come up to him and say, are you that prophet? 
You know, what prophet? Well, that prophet that Moses spoke about way back then, Deuteronomy 18. Aye, that prophet. Well, when he spoke, though, when you had people coming, isn't it, to John the Baptist, they were asking him, were they, was he that prophet? He says, no, I'm not that prophet, he says. But the whole thing is this, isn't it? That the prophets became the medium of God, didn't they? Or shall we say like this, which is better probably understood, the mediator of God. So God was there, man was here, and in between was the prophet. God communicating to man, spoke here to him, to them. That was the descent from heaven to earth. God kept open a viable line of communication. And he was speaking to these people. He wanted them to know who he was. And what the prophets were doing was they were unfolding and revealing more and more of the mind of God. God was communicating to these people. Very often that, that prophet <clears throat> was in direct communication with the king. So if the king was having problems and difficulties, as you find so often in the Old Testament, he'd summon the prophet. And he'd say, go and ask God. You know, what's all this about? Why is this happening? And so the prophet would go off and he'd pray. And then he'd come back and he'd say, well, God has said this. I mean, it was pretty direct, wasn't it? You know, sometimes you get God speaking directly, don't you? Bypassing the prophet for a, for a time, you know, and speaking directly to the people. But more often than not, he had these prophets who acted as mediators through whom he spoke to the people. And of course, this was a revelation, wasn't it? The way in which God communicated. God was saying, look, I'm up here and you're down there. And the only way in which I can communicate with you is not directly, but I want to speak to you. He says, through these prophets, and I'm going to speak to you at this moment of time. And down through the ages, he had spoken. The prophets weren't a dynasty or anything. They were people that were selected and chosen. They were sometimes priests. They were sometimes farmers or, you know, shepherds up in the hill countries and things like this. There were all kinds of people from different lines of work but they became instrumental in the hand of God as being the communication of the mouth of God. They spoke for God. And the thing is this, isn't it? That when they spoke for God, to disobey what they were saying was to disobey God. In actual fact, if you think of cults for a moment, isn't it? Always at the head of cults, there's always a prophet. And at the head, that prophet, when he speaks, he says, I'm speaking for God. You know, I'm the mouthpiece of God at this moment of time. And so what happens is he violates the consciences of the people because he, he as it were, ensnares them and, as it were, captures their conscience so that when they think they're disobeying this person, they feel as if they're disobeying God. And that's how cults work. You always have a head, one who controls everything because he claims and makes the claim that he is in direct contact with God. But these people were. But now in these last days, the coming of Jesus is ushered in the last days, and he speaks on behalf of God in a way in which they couldn't speak. He knows the Father in a way in which they didn't know God. And so when he spoke, he spoke with authority and with power. But not only that, is it? But you, what you find here is as well, isn't it, that Jesus was, you know, the priest as well, where well, you can see Jesus here 
it's implied more than actually stated. In verse 3 it says, um, when he had by himself purged or cleansed our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. You know, if you read through you know, the book of Hebrews, you'll find that Jesus was a priest, but a priest in a different way to the Levitical priest, of course, because he was a priest, and the quotation comes from uh, Psalm 110, and it says that he is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, you've got to go back down, way down, almost to the beginning of the book of Genesis to find out all about Melchizedek. He was the guy who met with Abraham. He was the guy who received benefits from Abraham. And he's a very mysterious character. He sort of pops up and then pops out. You know, it's as simple as that. He's in and out, and uh, you're so quick that, you know, unless you sort of focus upon him, you miss him. But he was a very important figure because he represented something that the Levitical order did not represent. And Levitical order was put in place by God for the benefit of the nation of Israel. But the Melchizedek order, of course, was more universal. It wasn't confined. It was before the nation. And so it was more universal. And so it had more of a universal appeal. So when Jesus comes, isn't it? He comes in the order of Melchizedek with it, you know, universal appeal to people, not just simply to the Jews. That salvation is not simply of the Jews. But it was to extend to all. But what did the priest imply, you know, to, you know, the Jews at the time? You know, because he was acting as a mediator as well, but he was acting in the other way. He was the one who represented man before God. Here was man, here was the priest, there was God. For man to come to God, he had to come through this priest. And why? Because this priest would offer up sacrifices for him on his behalf and speak to God and pray for them. So you had this dual aspect that the priest not only offered these sacrifices, but he also interceded for them. He prayed for the people, for the nation. And so these people were reminded... Not only that God was there and spoke to them through these prophets coming down, but if they wanted to come to God, they had to come through this priest who offered up sacrifices for them. The only way in which they could come to God was through reconciliation, through redemption, through atonement. These are the only ways in which they could come before God. And so every time they went to the temple or to the tabernacle, what they were reminded of when they saw the priest was that they needed atonement. They needed some form of appeasement with God. You know, they needed this situation whereby they could come before God, you know, removing their sin in order that they could approach God. But it was a fearful and terrible thing for them. Because every time they saw the priest, every time they saw the sacrifice, it was a constant reminder to them that they were sinners in the sight of a holy and righteous and moral God. And so it was a terrible thing for them. And so this one, this mediator, he makes reconciliation for them. He makes atonement. Because this is the way in which he's done it. He says, when he had by himself, purged or cleansed our sin. It's a reminder to us, isn't it, of Calvary. It tells us, isn't it, in the end of uh, chapter 2, for example, isn't it, 
that what was to happen here was that Jesus was going to enter into the state of death and he was going to make atonement for sin, but he was going to do more than that, even in verse 9. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. This one was going to destroy him who had the power of death. Through his death, this one was going to do everything for them. Here was this great priest. And, you know, you only have to read through Hebrews, you know, I'm mean, just keep touching upon it here, but if you read through it, you know, the description of Melchizedek and all of what he did and all of what he achieved and all of these things, focusing our attention upon Jesus as being a priest in that particular order of Melchizedek. And then lastly, what you see here is, of course, that there is this reference to Jesus, isn't there, as being our king, not only does he say it in verse 8, your throne, O God, is forever and ever, but it again is inferred in verse 3, isn't it, that he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Here was a reminder in the Old Testament, here was the mediator, you know, here was God representative upon earth, and they were to be subject to the king, under the rule of kings, under the rule and the obedience that they were to experience in following after their king. You see, you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 17 and it speaks there about a dynasty that was going to arise. And of course, this is David's greatest son, isn't it? This is what is going to happen. You've only got to look back and read about the case there, isn't it? You know, God wasn't saying to the Jews that they would never have a king. He anticipated that one day they would have a king. And then they would have a dynasty. And like the prophets, there was no dynasty. They were selected here, there, and everywhere. But here was an order, a methodology that was going to follow through right up to the very time of Christ coming. This is why there was so much emphasis given, isn't there, about Jesus being the son of David in the New Testament to show quite clearly that here was the fulfilling of that promise that was made to David that he would have a son who would reign forever. And here is Jesus, that we read about, who has sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. There he is. At this moment of time, he has entered into the very presence of God. We are under his rule. We are under his authority. He is king of kings and lord of lords. He is the one who is in control. He is the one who has absolute power and authority. This king is the king that we serve. This king is the only one who could fulfill those three roles in himself. Prophet, priest, and king. All three are found in Jesus in the Old Testament. Of course, they had three different kinds of people, didn't they? But when you look at Jesus, all of it was bringing them to focus their mind and their thought upon who Jesus is, prophet, priest, and king. The God who was there at the very inception of all things, through whom all things were made, we read here at this moment of time, isn't it? That he was the one who created the world and the universe in which we live, who must have existed prior to that event, because he is the creator of all of those things. This eternal God became the Son. The Son in the sense of he took upon himself this human form. 
in order that he might die to bring us to God. That he is not ashamed to call us brothers. Because this is why he came, isn't it? To bring us into the family of God. This is what the writer wants to say. He wants to lift up who Jesus is. Lift up what Jesus has done. And through that, this is what this whole book is all about. Oh, to see the glory that belongs to Jesus.